2 Timothy chapter 3. This morning I want to teach on Bible basics, some things you should know about the Holy Scriptures. 2 Timothy 3, beginning with verse 15. And that from a child you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished or thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Then if you let me read a passage from Psalm 119. It says in verse 89, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Let's pray. Father, what a privilege, what a blessing to be able to look into the text of Scripture and hear what you have to say to us. I pray God will have a greater appreciation for the word of God after this message in Jesus' mighty name. Amen, amen, amen. Psalm 119.89 was a favorite scripture of my pastor before he passed away some years ago. I think he liked the fact that it showed that the word of God doesn't change. In verse 89, it says forever. That's the time frame. There's no point in time where God's word is altered or is ever modified. And when he says that it is settled, he is saying that this word is established. Now there was a motto that my pastor had. He put it on all the cassette tapes and had it on little things in his office. It said, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. Because in his mind, the word of God was what made the difference. And he had that motto for a lot of years. And then one day, after about 30 years of preaching, he said he read that verse again and he got to thinking about that. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Then he told me, he said, I decided to scratch that second clause and just say God said it and that settles it. Because whether we believe it or not, God's word is forever settled in heaven. There are a lot of people outside the church today that do not believe in the word of God, but God's word hasn't changed. It still speaks of a heaven. It still speaks of a hell, even if people deny that such places exist because his word is forever settled. Isaiah says it this way in chapter 40. He says that the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Think about that. Every season we watch as things change. And we're about to enter into that time of the year, the autumn season, when we watch the leaves begin to turn colors. But even though they turn colors and fall to the ground and then are gathered up and burned or put in the trash or whatever takes place, so much of the vegetation is going to die. 
It'll all come back to life again come springtime. But do you realize that even though the vegetation and the flowers change, God's word endures? That generation after generation has read the same scriptures that you and I are both reading, and they have found that the word of God has not been altered at all. Now, people try to do it. People go out of their way to try to change what the scriptures say, but you cannot change what the Lord has already established in heaven. You can come out with a new Bible, and they come out with a new translation every year and a half or so in the last century, but even with the new translations where they're trying to rearrange the thinking of the readers so that they can have different interpretations and have different outlooks and perspectives, God's perspective and God's opinion hasn't changed. There's no doubt about it. Now there's several things about the Bible we need to know. The first is, that when the scripture begins in Genesis 1, it doesn't begin with the writer trying to defend or explain God. It starts with, in the beginning was God. It begins with the existence of God. We go then into creation, the creation of man, the origin of sin, the entrance of the devil into the garden, the first murder, and then the multiplication of iniquity in the earth. And then we have the flood. And when the flood occurs, it happens because the Lord wasn't pleased. So in Genesis 6, 7, 8, all of that's dealing with the flood. And the Lord told to Noah the same thing he said to Adam, be fruitful and multiply. But by the time we get to chapter 11, this is where it begins with Abraham. And then moving into chapter 12, the Lord tells Abraham to leave his home country. Now that is important because... From Genesis 1 to chapter 11, God speeds us along to get us to the point of Abraham. Because the book is about Abraham's seed. And God took one man from that man, created a family unit. With that family unit, created other families that became a tribe. That tribe became a nation. God told Abraham his seed would go into Egypt for 400 years. They did so. God raised up Moses to bring them up out of Egypt with mighty signs and wonders. And all of that is told in Exodus. But God gave them the tabernacle. God gave them the law. God promised a land to Abraham that his seed would dwell on. So the first five books of the Old Testament are the primary texts of the Old Covenant. Because the Old Testament as a whole, from Genesis to Malachi, is all about the land and it's all about the law. Once God got the children of Israel into the promised land in Joshua, he established authority through judges, kings, and chronicles. But he began to use prophets to talk to the authorities to tell the people to live according to the law. And when they strayed from the law, the prophets were telling them, repent, come back, return to God, turn from your iniquity. That's why Hosea had to go out and marry a prostitute. Can you imagine? A preacher married a prostitute in order to illustrate Israel's infidelities toward God.
This is why Jeremiah stood in the gate of the temple and said, amend your ways, because he was telling people, come back to the law. God had told them, if you live for me and live correctly, you can stay in the land. But if you disobey me, I'll uproot you and you'll be taken out of the land as captives. And Jeremiah told the children of Israel, because you haven't obeyed God's law, the Babylonians are coming. They're going to carry you away captive for 70 years. So the Old Testament is about the land and the law, and every book after Deuteronomy is basically a commentary on the first five books. That's why the prophets continually said, don't you remember the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? That's from Genesis. Don't you remember how God redeemed you and rescued you out of Egypt? That's Exodus. Don't you understand your sacrifices are meaningless to me if you won't obey me? That's Leviticus. Don't forget the miracle signs and wonders that God did for you and for your fathers in the wilderness. That's Numbers, Deuteronomy. All of the later books are a commentary on the first five of the Old Testament and the land and the law are so important. But when you come to the New Testament, you'll notice that the Gospels in presenting the story of Jesus, they all give various episodes, but they all tell the story of his passion or his sufferings and his crucifixion, and his resurrection. They don't all tell the circumstances of his birth. They don't all tell about every human that he ever healed. But they tell with great detail how he died. The book of Acts comes along and takes the message of that resurrected man and they scatter it all throughout the Mediterranean region as they preach the glorious gospel of Jesus. And it's because of the book of Acts that we understand Paul's epistles. Because Paul goes to the church, he goes to Ephesus and raises up a church. Later, he writes to the Ephesians. Paul goes into all of these different areas. And I tell you that because the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are the primary texts. Everything afterwards is a commentary on those first four. The book of Acts is to tell you how they preached about Jesus in different places and continued the miracle signs and wonders and the start of the church and the epistles explain how to take the effects of redemption and apply them to the redeemed. That's what it's all about. Well, this is what Paul had taught so many people in his travels. And this is why he told his son in the faith, Timothy, in verse 14, continue in what you've learned. And you are assured of the fact that this is truth. And he said, from a child, you've known the Holy Scriptures. Now, chapter 1 in verse 5 tells us that his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice were believers. And the faith that was in them was transmitted, passed down through the generations. Now it's in the heart of this man, Timothy, and Paul is telling him, you learned this as a child, which tells us a child is capable of learning scripture and learning the Bible. 
And a child is at a perfect age to have that mind and that conscience shaped by the word of God. Either you will mold a child's mind by the word of God or that conscience will be molded by the culture of this world. Paul knew that. The church knows that. This is why there are Sunday schools. This is why there are various Bible studies in children's churches, because we want the children to learn about God. I've seen people today who are opposed to children learning the scriptures. Think about that. The culture today is opposed to a child learning the Bible, but they want that same child to learn other pagan beliefs and teachings. They know that the people of this world and the government, they understand that a child at the age of three, four and five, if you can shape that conscience and you can mold it in the manner in which you want it to be molded, then it'll be very difficult to change them later as they get older. This is why the battle is on presently with regard to the kids, because we have People that will say things like, well, I believe that children aren't old enough to really understand their identity, who they are. So gender diversity has to be introduced. And they use that kind of language to make it sound as if it's, it's uh, inclusive. And they use academic verbiage to make it seem like this would be useful and profitable for all the kids. But yet at the same time, you know as well as I do that if we had a frank and open discussion with them about what they want to teach our children, they'd be angry and upset because you're telling folks what they want to do. They simply say we just want kids to have options. But the bottom line is they want little boys to learn about sodomy. And they want little girls to learn about lesbianism. And they want little boys to dress like little girls and little girls to dress like boys. And when you say it publicly and you say it bluntly, they get offended because they say, how dare you talk like that? Well, that's exactly what you want. But yet the church has been so quiet about these things that with it being pushed down people's throat, the church has now come to realize that the conscience of that child has to be molded. And Paul said, from a child, you've known the Holy Scriptures. So we need to hear the word of God. Let's never forget that when Athaliah was on the throne in the Old Testament, her story is told in the book of Kings and Chronicles. This woman was every bit as wicked as Jezebel. It said when she ascended the throne, she tried to murder all the former king's children. One by one, she had them slaughtered. But there was one little infant named Joash who was taken away and hidden in the tabernacle for six years. And his nursemaid looked after him. And the priest's wife looked after him and the priest came and taught him the Bible from the small age right on up through six, telling him about God, telling him about his heritage. Children of Israel had no idea he was in the tabernacle. Athaliah had no idea he was alive. But the Bible says at some point when he was about six years of age, they stood him up in a particular place, put a crown on his head, had the people come out, blew the trumpets and said, God save the king. And Athaliah realized she'd missed somebody. And the scripture says that he reigned 
with Jehoiada the priest at his side. And all through the days of the priest, he did what was right in the eyes of God. Can you see how important that Bible is in shaping a child's conscience and lifestyle? We have to know that God has called us as a church and you as parents and grandparents to raise up kings and priests. That means the word of God has to be given preeminence. It has to dominate in that life. And so this is why Paul says to Timothy, from a child, you've known the Holy Scriptures. They have to be introduced to this, to know God. It has everything to do with their conscience. Now, it's interesting that he puts the emphasis on what needs to be taught. And he calls the scriptures holy. So God went out of his way to inscribe his thoughts in a book on scrolls in ancient times. A holy God spoke to holy men who were moved by the Holy Ghost to produce holy scriptures. Since the dominating characteristic of God and these scriptures and of the Spirit of God is holiness, to be holy, that means that the reader of the book will become holy. We'll live a life separated unto God. We'll live a life turning from iniquity to draw closer to God. You have known from a child the holy scriptures. Now imagine how different your childhood would have been if you'd been raised without God like I was. You know, people, they hear me tell some of my stories and they just kind of shake their heads as though it's just so kind of weird. But you know, when you grow up in a family that doesn't know God, the only thing you can produce is ungodly seed. And when I tell people that the first time I went to jail, I was eight years of age, that is true. And when I tell people, I used to sit there in the bus stop at nine and ten years of age waiting to rob somebody that was old so I could have a little bit of money, that was true. And when I tell about how my parents only used the name of Jesus as a substitute cuss word, that was true. Imagine growing up in an environment that could create such a thing. How different my early years could have been had I had a mom and dad that knew God. Some of you had that. Some of you have that. You don't know what it is to do like some kids out here have to go out into the garage early in the morning and try to talk to mom and dad about some school money or lunch money because they're passed out in the garage from having drank all night or did drugs. You haven't had the experience of having to go and shake them as they're laying in the bed and you don't even have any idea who they're in bed with this night. Different person, week after week, different person, month after month, every six months, every year. It's a different person in their life and yet you're praying behind closed doors and God, if there is any God, if there's any kind of stability, provide that for me. There are a lot of kids like that today praying. And so here, you should consider yourself blessed that you had a grandma or had a dad or a mom or somebody that made sure you had a drug problem and that was they drug you to church because that helped shape your conscience. And you know the difference between right and wrong. 
The Holy Scriptures are powerful because the Scriptures are able to order our steps. And the Bible says that the Word of God is a lamp unto our feet. 1,189 chapters in this here book. Over 31,000 verses are in this book. We have no idea how many languages have this book translated into it, but yet billions upon billions of people have come to know God because of it. And if so many people in the past can be saved, imagine what God can do now. From a child, you've known the Holy Scriptures. These writings will change your life. Now think of it this way. Most homes have a Bible on the shelf. I wouldn't doubt that if you knocked on 10 homes in this community, probably seven of them, if not all of them, will have a Bible on a shelf somewhere. But it's sure as we're gathered here this morning listening to me proclaim the word, there probably were some people last night, husbands and wives that were in fisticuffs with one another. Somebody was probably at brawling somewhere in some other community or here in town. Somebody was cussing one another out. Some kids had parents that cussed at them, troubles and difficulties, and they don't even realize that the answer to their family problem it's just a few feet away on a shelf. Just a little Bible about an inch and a half thick can turn that whole house upside down. And think of how many folks there are to say, I don't want to have anything to do with religion. I'm not interested in God. But yet that little book called the Bible comes into our heart and in our life and it changes us. It puts us on the right road going in the right direction. And people say, I'm not interested in God, but then they want your help. And you point them in the way of God and point them in the way of the scripture. And they say, I don't know what to do. But you can find the answer in what to do in that Bible that's there next to that lampstand. In that Bible that's there next to your bed. Paul is saying to Timothy, these scriptures are holy this isn't like some book that you find in an airport bookstore. This isn't like some book that you find in your local library. This book is holy because the words are holy because the author is holy. Now then he goes on and he says, these scriptures are able to make you wise. So the Bible has the capacity to produce wisdom in the man or woman that listens to it. I believe the scripture also says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs chapter 1 says wisdom walks down the road every day, lifting its voice, crying out to people, saying, listen to me, follow me, turn unto me. And it says it calls out in the night to people, but they don't listen. So the scriptures are able to give us wisdom. I suppose if you had one opportunity to ask God to give you something, and he said, I'll answer one prayer of yours, give you whatever you want. I imagine there'd be people that would pray for power, pray for money. There'd be people that would pray for real estate, 
Some might even pray for a happier home or whatever. But you know, when God came to Solomon and he said to that man, I'll give you anything that you want. Just ask. One thing. Solomon said, Lord, give me wisdom with an understanding heart. And the Lord said, because you ask for wisdom above all things, I'll give you that and I'll supply you with wealth. You know the beautiful thing about wisdom? If you have wisdom, you'll know how to walk in love, how to walk in the spirit, how to walk in the power of God. But I've met a lot of people that are loving and merciful and compassionate, but naive. I've met a lot of people in my life that exhibit great faith and trust and confidence in God, but aren't that bright? But if God gives you wisdom and permits you to walk in the wisdom that comes from the word, then he'll show you how to do other things. Because remember, this book doesn't tell you how to rebuild an engine. And this book doesn't teach you how to, how to plant a field. This book doesn't even tell you how to bake a cake or how to drive from here to Fairbury, but this book does tell you how to act when you're doing those things. Talks to you about your, your character, deals with your conduct, your behavior, what your heart is supposed to be like. So he says the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise. How many of you would want God to give you wisdom? I know I would want wisdom. Because if we had it, our lives would be a lot better than they are right now. But it's available. Because James chapter 1 says that we seek the wisdom which is from above, not from down here, that is sensual and carnal. He says, if anybody lacks wisdom, let them ask of God who gives it generously or liberally. Ask God for wisdom. As a female medical doctor more than a century ago named Lillian Yaleman. And being a doctor, she was in a very stressful occupation, as you can imagine, for way back then, around the turn of the 20th century. But with all the stress she was going through and unable to sleep, she thought if she took a little morphine, that would help her. Well, she did. She became hooked, got, became an addict. And within a short period of time, she was taken 50 times what would be the normal dosage for a human being <clears throat> in taking imbibing morphine. Well, she was bad. I mean, heart was palpitating rapidly, profusely sweating all the time, lost her appetite to the point where she could hardly keep a drop of water on her stomach without vomiting, all kinds of problems, losing weight, beginning to hallucinate. She went to John Alexander Dowie, Zion, Illinois, to get prayed for, wanting to be made whole. She tried the uh, Keeley Gold Cure, didn't help her. She came out of that, had to go to a sanitarium because she was losing her mind. Everything was falling apart. This went on for years. And she wasn't too terribly interested in God but there were people praying for her and people trying to talk to her. And over and over again, she found that the path that she was on was 
getting worse and worse. Well, eventually, when she was laying in that sanitarium, she had a Bible that was given to her. There was a little verse she came across in Job chapter 33. And I just want to read a few of these passages to you because it changed her life and showed her that God wanted her to be whole. In Job 33, verse 23, it says, If there be a messenger with him, an interpreter, one among the thousand, to show unto a man his uprightness, then God is gracious to him and says, Deliver him from going down to the pit. I found a ransom. His flesh shall be fresher than a child's. He shall return to the days of his youth. He shall pray unto God, and he will be favorable unto him. He shall see his face with joy, for he will render unto man his righteousness. This woman read that and realized God could take her feeble body and make it stronger. She, she realized that it was God's design and God's plan to heal the body. She was a medical doctor. She knew if you cut somebody that that body would immediately begin to work, <clears throat> to clot, to stop that blood from leaking. Then she realized God didn't want her in the condition she was in with those addictions. And she said before she knew it, her appetite had come back to her. And she said her appetite and hunger was so strong, she was eating seven meals a day. But at the same time, she said she lost her appetite for morphine. She says she doesn't remember the exact moment it happened. She doesn't even remember the exact day that it happened. She just know that when she read those verses, somehow God gave her wisdom to understand her condition was fixable in the presence of God. What does the Bible teach? The Bible says that from a child you've known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise unto salvation. That means that the Scriptures can provide you with a plan for rescue, a plan of deliverance, a plan of redemption. Not just for you, but for your family. You want to see your grandchildren become Christian? You want to see a spouse or a neighbor come to know the Lord? then why not take the time and ask God to show you how from the Bible? It says in the book of Joshua that Joshua defeated 31 kings, and it gives the names of each king and their region. But do you realize every king had a different strength and weakness? He had to have a battle strategy for everyone. He had to trust God for every battle, but he had to have a strategy for every one of them. And it's the same with you and for me. And when you're looking at challenges in your life and looking at the things that you have to face, you have to say, God, give me wisdom to overcome this particular challenge because it's a big one, God. And if you don't show me how, Lord, and make me wise unto salvation, I'll be defeated. I'll be in bondage for the next 30 years. But if you show me what I need to do, God, I can come through this. Yeah. Look, look at how... Scripture delivered you from a super bad life. You know, there are a lot, a lot of people, before they become Christian, they didn't have any excess funds or extra monies. They, they spent it all drinking. They spent it all $40, $50 cartons of cigarette. They spent it all at the, at the dance hall somewhere. They spent it all gambling. They spent it all drinking. That stuff is costly. 
involves a, a lot of things that you have to do if you get involved with a lifestyle that doesn't know God. Think of the people that have a, a, a $1,000 a week crack habit. If you got a $1,000 a week crack habit and you don't have a job that supplies you with that kind of money, then you have to start selling yourself in order to fulfill your habit. Think of that kind of bondage that people are in. Think of the people that have the kind of habit where they, they owe not just the check that's coming, but they owe the check that's coming in two weeks or three weeks or four weeks. Think of the people in this nation today who trade their children for drugs. See? Yeah. But then that person comes to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and suddenly they're radically changed, and the Bible begins to help them reorder their steps. And where they wasted so much money over here, they realized the devil was taking it all, and God only says, I only want 10%. Then before you know it, there's a little bit extra here, some finances here, extra resources here. You're able to be a blessing to other people on this side. All of that because the Bible has made us wise unto salvation. There's absolutely no doubt that this book has changed a lot of people. Yeah, it's changed you. It's changed me. It's given you a better family than you ever could have had by knowing God. But if it can make you wise to bring deliverance to people, and to yourself, and think of how many people that still need to be rescued, that need to know God. But it also says, wise unto salvation through faith. That means faith is the means by which wisdom is released in your heart and in my life. Someone has to have confidence in God to believe that Jesus can accomplish in us everything that the word says he can accomplish in us. Faith in Jesus Christ. The first time faith ever worked in your life, it produced new birth. You heard the gospel. You believed. God gave you a new heart. You were born again. Everything changed. He gave you a new perspective, a new outlook on life. He worked on your attitude. You once were mean as a junkyard dog, easily offended anytime somebody said something to you. But now you've learned you've got to crucify the flesh. But when you become a Christian, then faith becomes a fruit. It's something that grows and develops. It has to be nurtured. It has to be fed so that it can grow in your life. And the scripture says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But sometimes faith also is a gift. That means there are occasions in your life when you come up against challenges and difficulties and then there's an explosion of trust or confidence in your heart and though everybody else is falling apart and absolutely worried, you have an inward assurance. God's got this and it's going to be all right. Other people don't have it. I'm telling you, they're falling apart and you just like, this is okay. It'll be all right. And I, and I pray this is what God gives you in this sick society we're living in now that's dominated by fear. You, you need something in your heart that helps you be able to walk these streets and walk into stores and walk into homes without being terrified that somebody's going to breathe a bacteria on you. Yeah. You've got to have a confidence in God. So the scripture says, able to make you wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. You're not going to get this 
in Buddhism. You're not going to get this in Hinduism. No New Age religion is going to produce this kind of confidence and trust in God. This is only going to be related to the anointed one by the name of Jesus who came and lived and died and was raised from the dead. He's the only means of producing this kind of faith in you. And the faith of the Son of God will be manifested in your life. That's what we're saying. Well, this is what the book teaches. And our elder brother, he goes out of his way to show us how to defeat the enemies and the devils that come against us. I think sometimes when we look into the scriptures, we forget that what God has done, he is doing. And what he is doing, he will do. We, we have a tendency to think, well, I'm reading about this in the scripture, but these were some ex exceptionally special people. They're no more special than you or me. I know the apostles were the ones that walked with the Lord Jesus, but I'm telling you their God is our God. The same spirit that operated in them is the same spirit that, re that resides in us. And we've got to know that God's not a respecter of persons when it comes to that. God is interested in seeing you succeed and not live in defeat just like he was that early, early church. God hadn't planned. God hadn't designed. God hasn't assigned any defeats for your life. The Bible says, thanks be to God, which causes me to triumph in all things. That means there's no circumstance where God wants you on the bottom. Not one. Yeah, not one. And there's no scenario that you can think of where God does not want you to come out on top. The Bible says, greater is he that is in the world, that, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. That's what the scripture teaches. And we've got to understand that some of us got to learn to resist the devil and be willing to fight. And, you know, children of Israel, sometimes they fought those enemies over and over again, but they had to learn to do it. But you've got to be willing, because if you're not willing to fight the devil, he'll just sit there and just like the old comic strip with Blondie, that big old guy come by and kick sand in your face every day, and you'll just sit there and take it and won't do a thing. Yeah. One time when I was a kid, I got into a fight with a guy. I couldn't have been but nine or 10 or something like that. And we got to tussling. He got the better part of me in that battle. And when I got home, my brothers found out about that. My oldest brother, you know what he did? Walked me right back around the corner to where that little boy was out there cutting the grass. He said, go handle that. And I went right out there in that front yard and he and I went at it again. And I got the better of him. And then we marched back home and that was the end of that. You say, that's a, that's a crazy way to handle it. That's how you handle it when you don't know God. But here's the point of the story, though. You've got an elder brother by the name of Jesus. That's right. And he came and whipped the devil for you and defeated all your enemies and all of your adversaries. And when you get into the midst of a battle and you start saying to yourself over and over again, well, Lord, I've been trying to beat this tobacco now for 18 years. I've been trying to defeat this attitude for 20 years. And all you do is meditate on how you lost. Eventually, God's going to bring you right back into a confrontation with it so that you can face it and finally defeat it. Or you can spend the rest of your life living a defeated life trying to convince everybody you don't have the power to defeat the enemy. You do have the power because he already fought the battle and won the victory for you. That's the key. And if you see what Christ has done for you at Calvary, 
And they don't mind getting in a little skirmish with the devil. You know, Jesus said through Paul, fight the good fight of faith. What's a good fight? The one you win. An even better fight is the one that you already know you've won before you start the fight. Like those, don't you? See the kids when they have to get ready for the wrestling matches and your grandchild or somebody's grandchild walks up there sheepishly to the edge of the mat and then you got the other one over there and I mean he just looked like he's foaming at the mouth and he's growling. I mean he's doing all of this and you can already see the one on this side is whipped before he even gets started. That's what the devil wants from you. That's what the devil wants from me. He wants us to believe that we can not defeat him. But I'm telling you, this book says we win. We're victorious and we're more than conquerors through him that loves us. Amen. There's no doubt about it, folks. God hadn't called you to live a defeated life. He's called you to live a strong, robust Christianity for him. He doesn't want you to be intimidated by anybody. Don't let anybody push you down. Don't let them push you backwards with their opinions. You stand your ground. If somebody tells you, I just don't think Jesus is the only way, say, you believe whatever you want to believe. I'm still standing on the word of God. And don't allow anybody to put their spirit of fear in you. Be strong enough to trust God. Let them wander around in fear. But you walk with God who makes us wise unto salvation through faith. Let's stand this morning. Maybe you're facing a battle or a challenge today and you're needing God to provide you with some wisdom. It's in the book. He can give it to you. Whatever the circumstance might be, he's got it. It's just a matter of finding it and then applying it, putting it into effect. It's not enough for us to have this in our home. We've got to do it. It's not enough to have this on the pulpit in a church. The preacher's got to preach it. But when we take the time to stand on the word of God and to believe what the text says, we have every right to expect a miracle. Every right to expect a miracle. And there's no doubt about it. You got a song there, Shoot. There's no doubt about it when we think about the king. Let's just take a few moments and just worship God and thank God for being so wonderful. Lord, we honor you today and we worship you this morning. You are a lovely savior. You've gone out of your way again and again to show us how strong you are. So right now, Father, we want to thank you for the battles that we were able to avoid through your guidance. We thank you right now, Lord, for providing all kinds of sustenance and, and blessings and abundance in our homes. Thank you for the health that we have in our bodies, Lord. We pray that as you continue to lead and guide us, that you would open up our eyes to see more and more of what you have placed in the word of God. Let our younger people and our older people know that you're great and mighty, that we never have to be intimidated by the devil. You've called us to the kingdom for such a time as this, almighty God. We love you, we worship you, and we praise you, almighty God, in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus. You are great God, Lord.